You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 141, CSEC, A View from the Bench, Part 2. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And Sandy, we are in the midst of a break with a conversation uh, with our guest from last episode, on CSEC and the justice view of this, and I'm really excited to uh, continue our conversation. Well, I want to welcome back uh, Judge Doug Hachimonji, and he's given us some insight so that we are a little clearer on the recent um, safe harbor law that was passed here in California, and that is um, makes us the 35th state, I think, to to pass such a law, if I'm correct. And I want to kind of look at something a little less um, intense from the perspective of, of following CSEC, because you all know that I am particularly focused on prevention and what I began to understand about our juvenile justice system is that it does have a very significant role in child welfare. It isn't just getting bad kids and calling them, labeling them delinquents and putting them in juvenile hall. So Judge, welcome back. Thank you. And we want to talk about the role of the juvenile court judge in child welfare and the idea that kids come to your court not just because they're perceived by the community to be troublemakers. And I, at the end of the last episode, I described a PowerPoint presentation that I saw you give, and I have in forever burned in my brain this idea that juvenile justice is different than criminal justice. We're not there just to put bad people, bad kids, bad um, anybody into uh, and incarcerate them. But we in juvenile justice, this is when a child is on a trajectory and we want to create a path that leads to a vibrant and colorful future for them. So I, I just want to talk about how did you, how did, how do you describe um, that to kids who come into your court, what you want for them? Hmm. Um. You know, you, you, I describe what you've described, which is the children that we see um, are often standing at a fork in the road. Um, and they can go left or they can go right. Um, the path to the right is um, a path that's vibrant, bright, joyful, successful, happy, healthy. It's a path everybody understands. It's a path children aspire to, I believe. But they are at a fork in the road. And the path to the left is a path that's much darker, 
much harder, much grimmer. It's a path that leads to um, crime, poverty, and all of the bad things that kids understand are out there. So the the role of of the judge in child welfare that's something that I I really hadn't contemplated. I really just thought that you're sitting up there on the bench and you're saying guilty or not guilty, guilty or not guilty and they just come through and and then um, you don't see them again, but that's not really the case. You become a very active um, participant when kids come into your court. How does that work? Well, the juvenile court is generally broken into two um, branches, if you will. Uh, there is uh, one branch that we call the dependency court. And dependency court um, addresses uh, children who have been abused or neglected by usually their parents or who their caretakers happen to be. Um, the other branch of the court that we have is something that we call delinquency, which is uh, when children themselves break uh, criminal laws. In, 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 in many respects, although we are those are two branches of our court, um, the truth of the matter is those two branches blend together often. Children are not either just abused and neglected or criminals, delinquents. Oftentimes, they're somewhere in between. Their stories are somewhere in between. Um, because abuse and neglect does and can lead to um, criminal offenses, trim, uh, children breaking the law. Although we have these two branches, recognizing that it blends together, it's the responsibility of the juvenile court, uh, of the uh, agencies that work with the juvenile court, to rehabilitate the child, to change the life trajectory of the child uh, from a path that, as we described earlier, is grim and dark, to this path that is bright and hopeful. That's generally our responsibility. However, whichever door they come into, whether they come into the de dependency door or come into the delinquency door. Granted, the dependency door, because we are talking about situations where caretakers have abused and neglected children, uh, one of our key responsibilities is to try to restore the family, to address the problem that brought the child into the court, whether it's drug abuse on the part of the parents or domestic violence within the home. Uh, our responsibility is to try to address those family problems, uh, to bring the family back together, because the family is, the, is a fundamental critical un uh, unit in our society for the overall success of a child. If that can't be achieved, if the uh, problem that brought the child before the court cannot be solved, uh, then it is the responsibility of the juvenile court, the juvenile court judge, to find um, a more stable, permanent living situation for the child, whether that's in finding another family that can adopt the child, um, individuals that will serve as guardians for the child, or a different uh, long-term permanent living arrangement.
Um, again, the idea is we either restore the family and by restoring the family, place that child again back on a path towards uh, happiness and success. Or, or, or if we're not able to restore that family, we still need to move that child down that brighter path if we can. Um, in the uh, delinquency system, um, we are responsible again for getting that child on to that better path. We are responsible for holding the child accountable for his or her conduct as is appropriate, but to rehabilitate the child, recognizing that oftentimes the root of that delinquent conduct may again lie back in that family, uh, in the dynamics of that family, or even in a larger sense, the dynamics of the neighborhood in which the child, uh, where the child came from, um, to address those kinds of problems, to again, keep that child or put that child on that path, on that brighter path. So misconceptions in the public that with the passage of SB 1322, you're not seeing those kids anymore. Now it's, oh, now the court schedule is going to be lighter because they don't come before the judge. Um, Indeed, you still are active in the community um, for the welfare of children. Right. Um, The fact that that uh, children are not being prosecuted for prostitution doesn't mean we don't see those children. Um, the, as we said before, the lives of these children come out of abuse and neglect and abandonment and alienation. Um, it is our, still our responsibility to address those uh, underlying root problems. Um, that lack of support, that alienation, that abuse and neglect can and does uh, result in the child uh, committing other criminal offenses, not prostitution, but other criminal offenses, whether it happens to be vandalism or drug abuse or those, or, and those types of things, thefts, that we will have to address uh, in the delinquency system. Again, we still see these children, and it is still our responsibility it's still our function to change the lives of these children, put these lives back onto that brighter path and move them along that brighter path if we can. And what would be some of the actions that you can take from the bench on behalf of this child? Being a judge, being a juvenile court judge is a really humbling experience mm-hmm. because You can't alone change the outcome of anything. It has to be a a team effort. It does take a village. We are reliant upon our county agencies, our probation agencies, our child welfare agencies, our behavioral health agencies. We're reliant upon non-governmental agencies to provide the assistance and service and support at-risk children and families need. We may be able to direct um, families and children in certain directions, uh, direct them towards certain services, but those services have to exist. 
Um, they have to be appropriately funded, resourced. The individuals uh, who work within those service agencies need to be adequately, appropriately trained, particularly when we're talking about um, exploited children, we need uh, service providers that are trauma-trained, uh, trauma-informed, uh, to be able to address the problems that we need. Um, it doesn't help that me or my colleagues may go to some trauma-informed seminar to learn for ourselves. It's important that we do. But if our stakeholders, our juvenile justice partners, are not also receiving that kind of training, we're not going to be able to achieve the kind of outcomes uh, that we want and are statutorily mandated to try to achieve. I think um, one of the things I read an article that you wrote a few years ago about uh, the role of, of juvenile justice in child welfare, and I'm, I'm going to read this sentence. Unique among judges beyond deciding individual cases, juvenile court judges must provide active leadership roles inside the courthouse and in the community. And it goes on to talk about determining the needs of and obtaining and developing resources and services for at-risk children and families. And I think I think that's what you're talking about here. And that leadership in building that team around these kids, uh, around these children, uh, that's, that's like way more than a nine to five job. It's the job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the job. Um, and it's not a nine to five job, but many people, yourself, is a, is an outstanding example. Um, it, 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 we don't have nine to five jobs. Um, I think that those of us or many of us that work in juvenile justice do so as, as a calling, mm. as a passion. Um, it happens to also be a job, but it's one that we're pretty passionate about. Um, moreover, it, our um, standards of judicial administration in California do require us to take a leadership role uh, in juvenile justice, in developing those resources, advocating for uh, services in the community, services for at-risk children uh, and families. So it's, it, it, it is our mandate. It's our responsibility. And, and I think I want listeners to understand how invested our judicial system is in these children and that passing laws like this doesn't take them off your plate. It doesn't take them off um, out of your line of vision. They're still very much there. And, and I, I want to look at that a little bit from kids who, children who come into your court that have not been CSEC victims yet, but, and you and I have talked about prevention and early intervention. Um, can you, can you address that from the role of, of juvenile justice? Is there the possibility of prevention? Sure. Absolutely. That's the name of the game. There's a reason that CSEC victims 
let me back up. There's a reason that children in foster care are at the highest possible risk to become CSEC victims. Mm-hmm. Um, not because they're in foster care, but because of the underlying problems that put them in foster care. Again, those, those ingredients, that abuse, that neglect, that alienation, that lack of support, that lack of love and care um, that happens in the family, uh, those ingredients mixed together are what create CSAC victims. If we can solve the problem of child abuse and neglect, we will prevent children from becoming CSAC victims. Well, describe neglect, because I know a lot of people understand child abuse. They don't really get it that neglect is is a problem. It's like, well, kids are, you know, somebody's not watching them. So when... A single mother with three children is addicted to methamphetamine. They live in a studio apartment, the entire family. Mom spends most of her time on under the influence of methamphetamine. There is no food in the pantry or the refrigerator, perhaps a partially consumed, now sour half gallon of milk. When the house is dirty, I don't mean dusty, I mean... um, Certainly uh, wouldn't pass a health inspector. Certainly wouldn't pass a health inspection. Um, when the children haven't been to school, uh, haven't had a decent meal to eat, um, that the perhaps 12-year-old eldest child is taking care of her younger brother and sister because mom won't. Mm. That's neglect. Mm. Um, That's the kind of neglect that will lead to a child again starting down that path um it's a it's a well-worn path unfortunately many children have tra- traveled it from that sort of neglect uh to truancy to low-level misdemeanor offenses to felony offenses gang crimes to adult felony offenses the it's a that path from neglect through adult criminal offenses to capital crimes is unfortunately a well-traveled, well-worn path, and it's the path that it's our responsibility to get children off of. So when people say, well, uh, these kids aren't being abused, they don't have any bruises, um, no one's doing anything to them, um, then these people don't really understand the impact of neglect. And neglect is... um, at a much higher rate than physical abuse or sexual abuse, at least here in Orange County. Certainly. And so that means then that these this community that we're talking about, especially NGOs, there are ways that they can be involved in intervening 
in in that aspect of of a child's um, development, making sure that they're after school programs, making sure kids aren't labeled as truant when mom's incapacitated to bring them to school. Um, just a more involved community that understands that trajectory. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, um, without community organizations, community-based organizations, I think that we uh, would be lost. Um, community-based organizations need to reach out. And really, small, discreet, everybody's part of some sort of community, um, whether it's from school, whether it's a religious organization, whether it's an ethnic organization, each of the distinct communities in our larger county need to be aware of the members of their community and be in a position to support that child and support that family when there's a need for it. Um, Without without community-based organizations, we would be lost, I think. So let's talk in this uh, this last third of, of our show today about the aspirational goals. I've I've heard that term and I've read this in this article, and um, it it seems like a very lofty um, agenda for our juvenile court system. Well, it is um, for sure. And, and by that, I mean, we need to be realistic. We're not, frankly, always successful in achieving those aspirational goals, those lofty goals that we have, uh, that our statute, our laws set out for us. Um, we don't always achieve them. Um, I am continually humbled by my inability to achieve those goals, um, but not defeated. Mm, good. You know, it, 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 like every aspirational goal, we have to continue, continually um, strive to achieve those goals, to be persistent, um, because we're not always successful. The people that work in juvenile justice, and again, we're not talking just about the judges. Mm. Um, there are specially trained lawyers that are invested in juvenile justice, social workers, probation officers, again, um, non-governmental service agencies. Those of us that are involved in juvenile justice all have that same aspirational goal. And we've also all suffered our share of heartache and heartbreak when a child fails to achieve those goals. Um, we still need to strive on, you know, uh, even through those, even through those defeats, um, so it makes it challenging. So, so one of the issues that I'm constantly trying to figure out how we can, um, reach our, our legislative bodies is because they provide the funding for these goals, um, or not. And the focus on 
prosecution, you know, we talk in, in human trafficking models about prevention, protection, prosecution. And if you looked at those three P's um, on, on a menu with um, looking, if you're yelping it and you're you're trying to find something you can afford, you've got $1 sign, $2 signs, three, four. Uh, prosecution gets $4 signs. Uh, but And now that... Um, that this has been decriminalized as it should be, um, where where do we find the dollars? Where do we find the funding? Because funding for the behavioral services, the mental health, um, these addressing these risk factors, um, that seems to have diminished over the last uh, few years as we put more and more resources into um, prosecution. That's my take on it anyway. Well, um, I'm a judge. Mm-hmm. I'm not uh, in either the legislative or the executive branch of government. Um, those branches of government are responsible for setting the priorities of our state, uh, of our county. Um, and the priorities um, are... Our true priorities um, that are seen in funding mm. is seen in funding. Um, it's not my job to set those priorities. It is the job of the executive branch and of the legislative branch to set those priorities. Um, so I've asked you a question you can't really answer. I'm so um, so. I'm just going to make a statement and let it uh, settle with listeners. Um, if our priorities are these children, then we need to be advocating for uh, how our legislators, how our executive branch establish priorities so that when the court orders services, those services are available and a child isn't placed in line waiting um, until those services are available. So that's that's my own personal um, take on that. Um, so winding up here, courtrooms have in increasingly um, large caseloads. And one of the things that I read in your article was, uh, and I'll just read this sentence about Judge Edwards, was right that juvenile court judges can play a crucial role in changing the lives of our nation's at-risk children for the better. Um, what are, give us one or two things that you believe we can do as a nation better for at-risk children? What we as a nation can do is to recognize that it does take a community effort. Um, nobody can really sit at the sidelines when we are talking about our children. Everybody has a stake in the game. Everybody has a stake in the outcomes. Um, How so? How so? If a child fails, our community is not only less, but in many instances, when a child, um, when a child goes down the wrong path, our community suffers 
in the in in terms of crime, mm. homelessness, mental health, all the problems that we see on our headlines today in our communities that we are concerned about poverty. Mm. If th- they happen because those children go down that darker path, that grimmer path. We have a stake in in the outcome of these children, just from the standpoint of our communities. Even if you're not a parent, um, you know, unless you're living in a cave somewhere in the upper reaches of Alaska, you have a stake in our communities. Have a stake in the outcome when it comes to these children, and we need to recognize that, and we need to pull together as a community, and prioritize those children, um, again, because we all have a stake in their outcome. Oh, that's good, because when we're able to um, dissociate ourselves from the issue, not own them, I'm constantly impressed when I listen to members of our juvenile justice system, including the attorneys and the whole community you described, because they use the same term you just did, our children. These are our children in our community, and it is a challenge to everybody in in our community to how we become part of the solution. And when we walk away from that, um, we're not just abdicating. We're saying no. It's a no. And we need to have more people who say yes. It isn't enough to pass legislation to decriminalize a child. Now we have to find resources to empower that same child so that they can be successful members of our community. And the, the, it's a great step, but it is just the beginning of the process. Agreed. Yes, okay. So I want to thank you for being willing to, to uh, come down here and and um, answer my questions. I know that for a lot of people, uh, we've broken through some um, misconceptions about what juvenile judges do and what their priorities are, and especially um, how much they care about their job and that it really is a calling. And I just want to tell you that you're a champion and a hero, and the view from the bench for children who are sexually exploited in Orange County, we are there to support them because of leadership like yours and Judge Maria Hernandez as well. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. And thank you so much, Judge. Thank you, Sandy, for a really powerful conversation on the importance of juvenile justice in these efforts. And Sandy, this is just another example of how we all need to be working together in close partnership. Uh, We've talked about partnership so many times on the show. Um, It is uh, sometimes easy to think about these, the different, um, all the different entities we've talked about on the show, all the different relationships and people and organizations, and think of those as separate and think about the actions they take. Um, But as we've heard today um, uh, from Doug, just the, the, the power of working in collaboration. And, and how that's so critical and so important in the work we're doing. And, uh, and we are here, of course, working in collaboration with you. And uh, you're a part of this community, and you're a part of helping us to continue to do the work that we do, which is to empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. 
And uh, I hope you'll reach out to us if you've had questions that have come up out of today's conversation. You can reach us uh, one of two ways at our email address, gcwj at vanguard.edu. That stands for the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University. Or you can reach us by phone, 714-966-6360. Keep in mind the Insured Justice Conference is coming up. Uh, Sandy, what's the address for folks to register for that? InsureJustice.com. And that's insure, E-N-S-U-R-E, justice.com. Thanks, Sandy. That's coming up in early March, and we look forward to seeing all of you again in just a few weeks. Take care.